Good morning. This morning's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 17. It can be found on page 238 in the, the chair Bibles. Give you some time to find it. So 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 17. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kirith-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Dedicate yourself to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the asterisks and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and they, were, and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. And the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to the place below Bethkar. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord had helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again, and the Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The sit the city of Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued the surrounding territories from, from Philistine control. There was also place between Israel, also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgah, and Mizpah, and would judge Israel at all these locations. Then he returned to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there. He built an altar to the Lord there. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I recognize most of you. I think there's some guests here, so we want to welcome you in particular. My name is Godwin. I'm one, I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as the lead pastor and I have the privilege of uh, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and continuing our series in this wonderful book. Uh, so I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open to that chapter and keep your eyes focused on the words in that chapter as we walk through this. Uh, I want to begin by asking you a question. It's a very simple question. When you think about Jesus, what image first comes to mind? When you think about Jesus, what is the image that first comes to mind? 
Maybe it's an image of the good shepherd and you're thinking of his kindness and his gentleness towards you. Maybe it's the image of the cross and you are pondering his sacrifice for you. Maybe you see him walking on water and it's his power that you're contemplating or uh, his kingly authority as he's coming into that city with palm branches and you're seeing perhaps a picture of his kingship. What about Jesus as warrior? Is that something that you've thought about before? Jesus as warrior, and even as I say that, maybe your mind flies to the future. Jesus riding on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood, and he's coming at the head of an apocalyptic army to bring justice and judgment and so forth on the earth to establish his kingdom on the earth. Maybe that's where your mind goes when I say Jesus is warrior. Well, what if I were to tell you that God has always served his people as a warrior king from the very beginning? Think with me now. Throughout the Old Testament, God presents himself as a warrior king, saving his people. I want you to catch this. Saving his people by judging their enemies. You know, when we first see this, it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's in that cursed portion where Jesus, or excuse me, God says that a child, a seed, a descendant of Eve will stomp the head of the serpent. Excuse me. And so there's a, a sort of holy aggression that is intrinsic to the character of God. He has always been committed to delivering his people by stomping out their enemies. I think that's something we don't think about often. Now, where else do we see this? Well, consider the Exodus events from Egypt. How did God save his people? Well, he was their warrior king in that story. He judged the Egyptians. He sent plagues. He destroyed their army at the Red Sea. Uh, he allowed for them to be plundered by the Israelites. And, and here's why I'm bringing this up. Because here in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, we see the same pattern of God acting as a warrior king, saving his people and judging their enemies. I usually don't have a lot of stuff on notes, but you'll notice that that single sheet of paper in your notes and Flip that over, you'll see two figures. Okay, look at figure one. It summarizes what happens from 1 Samuel 4 through 7. And you'll notice there, not only is it a chiasm, which I'm not going to explain right now, but uh, not only is it a chiasm, but you'll notice there kind of a summary of the events that have taken place since 1 Samuel chapter 4. What has God been doing? He's been acting as their warrior king. How has he delivered Israel? Well, he fought on their behalf. Remember with me, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark was exiled. God himself was exiled. We expected the Philistines to carry Israel into exile, but it's Yahweh who is exiled in Israel's place. And then, from this place of apparent weakness, God defeats Israel's enemies when he's in the cities of the Philistines. And so he takes out Dagon, their God, and he sends plagues their way. Now, why is this important for you and for me? Well, we've got some enemies too, don't we? We've got some enemies. At the top of the list is sin. Sin that wars within our soul. We need God, our warrior king, to help us with that. Satan, Peter describes him as a roaring lion that seeks to devour the church. And so we need God's help to fight on our behalf against Satan and his minions. Death. Death is perhaps our greatest enemy. Just this past week, I lost a friend. Some of you know who she was. She was your friend too. 
And I went through a lot of emotions as I was thinking about this friend. Grief at the top of the list, sadness, but also anger, frustration. Because death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is our enemy. It made me want to shake my fist at death. So if you're at a funeral and you've got those kinds of feelings, let me just encourage you. Those are good feelings. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. So against these enemies, what hope do we have? Well, this is why Jesus is absolutely foundational for us. Because against these enemies, he is the only one who fights on our behalf and gives us the victory, right? And I want you to notice, this is what we're going to see in this passage, Jesus is the culmination of the pattern the Old Testament lays down for God being our warrior king. It's the very pattern we see in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You'll see the main point, not on the screen this time, but on your paper. So, hey, you don't have to write it down. Some of you are excited about that. Here's the main point in a sentence. God is, a, is our warrior king who fights for those who repent and worship him alone. I'll say it again. God is our warrior king who fights for those who repent and worship him alone. I want to point out three episodes in the story. The first episodes, as we're looking at verses two through six, what we see is a preparation for this warrior king, a preparation for the warrior king. Now, even though the ark is back in Israelite territory, that sounds like it's good news. It is. But chapter six, as we'll remember from last week, does not end well. The men of Israel are judged for their disrespectful treatment of the ark. And so God takes out 70 of them. And the ark is hidden away in this city, Kiriath Jerim. It's waiting to be installed. It's kind of in its wilderness-like period. It's not where it should be. It would take another 100 years before the ark would be recovered, and then even longer for it to be installed in Solomon's temple. So this is, this is not a good situation. This is not the way things ought to be for the nation of Israel. So what happens next? Well, Samuel shows up on the scene, finally. For three chapters, Samuel has been mysteriously absent, and here he is. He's back on the scene. So for those three chapters, judgment came upon Israel. Well, now Samuel's back. It kind of signals that God's mercy is slowly starting to come back to the nation of Israel. So in this chapter, we can trace God's hand, Yahweh's hand, through the ministry of Samuel. And it takes the shape of God being their warrior king. I want you to take note of verse 2. It talks about how 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken back to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, what was happening in this time period? We don't know for sure. I think it's very possible that Samuel was calling them to repentance. He was preaching God's word to them in, in the many Israelite cities for 20 years. And apparently, notice at the end of verse 2, there was a sign that Israel responded. It says, Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. So Samuel begins to lead this nation in corporate renewal. So Christian, if you feel discouraged by the apparent lack of spiritual fruit in your word ministry, maybe that's as you're teaching your children or your grandchildren or as you're teaching a Sunday school class or as you're in your neighborhood and reading the Bible with someone who may not know Jesus and you're thinking, why don't I see spiritual fruit? I want you to remember Samuel's example here. He labored, get this, for 20 years just to get Israel to obey the first commandment. Right? Don't have any other gods before me. 20 years before he saw spiritual fruit in God's people. And so let me encourage you, if you're in that 
season of ministering God's word, to be patient, to be prayerful, to be persevering. Samuel then instructs Israel in verse 3. Let's read this together. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths that are among you. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. Here's a picture, friends, of true repentance. It's good to have sobs and sorrows over our sins. That's a good place to start. That's often where our repentance begins, but it's much more than just that, right? True, re- true repentance is confession plus action. So you think about your own repentance, maybe in the last few weeks, and you think about particular sins or idols that you've been fighting. Has your repentance been confession plus action? The word repent means literally to turn away, to change directions. And so friends, true repentance always results in true change. Sometimes we take mere tears and sorrows to be infallible signs of repentance, but not necessarily so. We tell ourselves things like, you know, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. It won't happen again. I've got it under control. And then we attempt to sometimes kind of manage our sin instead of actually, as Paul says, putting it to death. Listen, people can be internally moved without being actually changed. And so Samuel's preaching to Israel is in this moment is meant to counter this sort of frothy version, the superficial version of repentance. He presses them, notice, he presses them to go beyond the merely emotional response. What does he say? Return to the Lord with all your heart. Get rid of the foreign gods. He doesn't say, hey, tuck those foreign gods away in a closet. He says, get rid of them. Set your hearts on God. Worship him alone. Friends, genuine repentance, according to Samuel, is tangible. It moves beyond just kind of an emotional response or remorse to concrete action. And for Israel, this action was difficult. The Canaanite religion of the land included worship to Baal and Asherah, the male-female deities of favor and fertility. So get this, I, I kid you not. Attending a Canaanite worship service meant having the chapel and brothel in one location. Okay, so it not only helped your crops, it helped your libido. And so Israel had to give this up. This was, they were entwined with these idols. They were entwined with this worship, this, this false worship. And they had to give it up. They had to break with these idols. And so only a supernatural repentance could break them of such bondage, right? Now we're at the heart of true repentance. Real repentance meets God's demand for total allegiance with whatever it takes to obey. It reminds me of Jesus' words in the New Testament when he says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Now, obviously, he's not talking about uh, literally cutting out your eye or your hand, but he's He's referencing kind of a radical spiritual amputation, right? You got to take repentance seriously because God is holy. So that's something that we do. Friends, whatever idol is there in your life right now, maybe it's your job or your social world, a particular relationship. We can idolize our kids. We can even idolize good things like ministry. The thing that you've elevated to a God level, the thing that, that you functionally worship and serve and sacrifice for? Does anything come to mind? Anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart, absorbs your imagination more than God? Those are your idols. 
So brothers and sisters, can you identify an idol in your life, one or two? Is it a lust for power or control? Is it an ungodly desire to be loved and affirmed? Are you enslaved to comfort and convenience? What about a particular friendship or a romantic relationship? Is it your vocational resume that you're trying to pad and kind of invest in? Or maybe it's your spiritual resume, the things that you do here at church. You're trying to impress people, impress God. Is it a specific political commitment? Is it a specific social cause that you're elevating to the level of Jesus? What is the thing that, that like Israel, you are enslaved to? There's something in your head right now. May I implore you, may I encourage you to confess your idols before the Lord and then to do the works of repentance. Do you need to step back from a relationship? Do you need to change jobs because you're far too involved with it? What does it look like for you to break up with an idol? I can think of a friend of mine named Ben uh, from a former church that I was pastoring, and Ben and I are pretty good friends. And for about 10 years of his life, he was enslaved to sexual sin against his wife that just escalated, and there was so much hidden there, and it took years for it to actually all come out. And I was one of the pastors and elders that helped him, and, and it got to a point where it almost led to his excommunication through years of church discipline. By God's grace, that didn't happen because he repented genuinely of that sin. And if he was here, if we were talking together, and if I were to interview him and said, hey, what does repentance look like for you, Ben? He would highlight the importance of breaking patterns of sin with, with, with that particular idol of sexual desire and so forth. But he would say something else. He would say that his worship was out of order. He would say that one of the chief reasons for his sin and one of the chief ways that he needed to repent and kind of turn and, and move towards Jesus was that he was worshiping his desires more than he was worshiping Jesus. His affections for his desires and lust was greater than his affection for Jesus. And that's something that we see here. Take note that repentance, according to how Samuel exhorts the Israelites, not only looks like putting off the old, use Paul's language, but also has a flavor of putting on the new. This is why Samuel says, return to the Lord with all your heart. Worship only him. And so friends, that place that your idols and my idols have taken up in our lives, that space is meant for God alone. Notice Israel gathers at Mizpah, and they fast, they pour out water. It represents the pouring out of their hearts. We see that kind of uh, paralleled in Lamentations 2 and 2 Samuel 23. It may also be a symbol that Israel is asking for the Spirit to be poured out again on Israel, for God to kind of pour out His blessings through the Spirit. And so here is a people who want to stop taking God lightly. They finally feel the weight of His glory. And so they are compelled to repent. Friends, what we see here is a portrait of the people who desperately want to get their relationship right with God, put off their sin, put on worship and gratitude and praise. Friends, we short-circuit our spiritual growth and progress if all we do is put things off. Stop doing certain things. Stop thinking certain things. That's a great start. We're also called to put on the worship of Christ, 
to start doing new things, to start thinking new things according to the word, right? William Cooper in his hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God, I think captures biblical repentance really well. Listen to one of the earlier stanzas. He says, return, O holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest, I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. But then watch this. Watch a later stanza. It's striking. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's a great picture of biblical repentance. Friends, this is how we prepare to experience the mercy of God as our warrior king. Not that, I want to make this clear, not that uh, repentance coerces God to give us mercy. This isn't like a formula. I just repent really well, then God's going to change my circumstances. Like that's not how it works at all. There's no merit in our repentance, but there is also no saving help without it. Repentance is not the cause, but the condition for God to fight for us and give us mercy. So friends, let me encourage you one last time. If you, like Israel, have been in a season of spiritual barrenness and idolatry and sin and discipline, you're feeling the heavy hand of God on your life. He's trying to get your attention. Let me encourage you to take your cues from ancient Israel. Repent of your idols. Return to the Lord with all your heart. And prepare yourself for the warrior king to act. Prepare for his mercy to invade your life. That's the first kind of episode in this story. Let's move to the second episode where we see Israel starting to experience this warrior king, verses 7 through 11. I want you to remember with me the Philistines were the neighbors of Israel, and they heard about all that was happening in the city in Mizpah. And to them, as, as Israel's gathering, they thought, hey, maybe Israel wants to attack us. And so it seems like they're preemptively going to attack Israel. And notice Israel was afraid, as you would imagine. They weren't prepared to fight. And they had this memory of 20 years ago, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Battle of Aphek, they were destroyed. They were totally thwarted, right? 34,000 Israelite footmen were destroyed by these Philistines. And so this situation didn't look good. Notice Samuel's exhortation to them. He says, trust in God, cry out to him, and he will save you. Now, friends, what happens next may be surprising because Israel doesn't just kind of pray and then arm up. Like, that's what we think they would do, right? Okay, let's pray, crowd to God, you know, pick up the, the, the spear. Notice Samuel makes an offering to God and cries out on Israel's behalf. Samuel acts as Israel's priest, standing in the gap, mediating God's mercy to them. And so on this day, Israel was able to kind of stand in God's presence only through sacrifice, right? You'd expect that uh, Samuel would kind of get up and do a Braveheart speech for them. Let's get them rallied and excited, and here we go. Here's your spear, here's your sword. Let's go take out the Philistines. But that's not what happens at all. He, he sets up a sacrifice. Interesting, right? Friends, blood needed to be spilled for Israel in order to be right with God. The same was true not only for them then, but the same is true for us today. You see, this animal sacrifice on this day in Mizpah, right before this battle, was just a symbol. It's a shadow. The real thing is the cross, isn't it? With Jesus on it. Mercy comes to us by way of Christ's sacrifice. We have God as our warrior king because first we have Jesus as our sacrifice. 
He stands in our place. Just like this animal stood in Israel's place. Blood was required and blood was set forth. And this victory, notice it comes through sacrifice. Look at verse 10 with me. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. What was he doing? He was offering a sacrifice. It's kind of nuts, right? And so this battle is won not by military might, but with worship, with repentance, with sacrifice. And I want you to notice, and this is so important, who wins this battle for Israel? Let's continue to read in verse 10. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below beth Car. Friends, it was the Lord that won this battle. I want you to flip over your note sheet and you're going to notice, again, figure one and then figure two. Notice, again, kind of the book ends, how the two battles kind of flank each other. Chapter four battle, chapter seven battle. And, and so we can learn that what the writer wants us to take away uh, comes from comparing these two battles and contrasting these two battles. So two battles with Israel facing the Philistines. The first one, chapter four, goes really bad, as we know. The Israelites are routed and it all happens because of their sin. But what about this battle? Notice chapter 7's battle. Israel genuinely repents. They put away their idols. They serve God alone. And the rest of the chapter describes Israel's victory in a way that reverses the Philistines' prior victory. Look at uh, figure 2. And if you follow the, the language and the, the details of the story, you'll notice that over and over again, the language mirrors each other, which again, invites us, the reader, to compare these two battles. So what do we do? What happens when we do that? Well, notice in the first battle, the Israelites bring out the ark and they thunder and shout. Remember this? So they've got their good luck charm. They've got the Ark of the Covenant. They think that they can manipulate God. They think that they can control the situation, and they lose. But this final battle, the Israelites are silent. They don't say a word. They're just afraid. And it's God who thundered loudly against the Philistines. I wonder what that looked like and felt like. One could guess. It is the Lord alone who gives them the victory. Friends, do you enter your days, do you enter your Mondays, do you step into your Tuesdays with very little regard to God? Is your Bible reading, your prayer time more of a good luck charm as if God owes you a good day after you read the Bible rather than those things being a true pouring out of yourself before him, a resting upon his new mercies that are there every day for you, a relentless dependence upon Christ? Is that is that how you view your Bible reading and prayer times? You know, when we compare these two battles, we, we see something so crucial for the Christian and for the church. Israel's victory doesn't rest on military might, but on their worship of Yahweh. Israel isn't winning because they have a better army. They're winning because they have a better repentance and a stronger, more powerful God. One battle, they try to coerce God. The other battle, they lay helpless at his feet, right? Here in chapter 7, we don't see Israel grabbing the rabbit's foot. Here they are walking by sheer faith. They dangle by the mere mercy of God. What is he going to do? They don't know. They don't know how he's going to act. They trust his heart, not knowing what his hand will do. And their only weapon is prayer, right? 
through Samuel the priest. Friends, this is how our warrior king chooses to act. He fights for us when we are humble, repentant, weak, and wholly his. I want you to hear me now. This is a countercultural, counterintuitive statement, but it's so true. We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes for the tasks and the trials of our days. We don't have the right weapons, the right power, the right capacities to tackle whatever's ahead of us today and tomorrow. And so our job is to repent, to depend, and then faithfully act out of the strength in which God provides each day. You know, I think the Western church needs to learn a lesson here too. We so crave uh, developing new strategies and offering the latest gimmicks, you know, 60 days to bring revitalization to your church in a box. We so crave these things and promoting kind of these proven, so-called proven programs as if our churches can live on our own evangelical cleverness. But there's a sort of spiritual warfare that is not touched by better administration or more creativity or flashier stuff. We often don't realize this until God kind of pulls the rug from underneath us and then all of a sudden we're forced to depend on Him apart from tricks and gimmicks and so forth. And we're reminded that it's the Word of God that does the work of God. We're reminded that the work that we're after as a church is supernatural work, right? Stuff that I can't do, you can't do, but we can pray for. Maybe that's what's going on in your life right now. All of your usual helps, your supports have been kind of taken away, and so you feel disoriented and kind of unsettled, defenseless, maybe like Israel, you're fearful. But friends, what if the Lord is intentionally ordaining such things in your life so that you may learn to lean on His mercy alone? So you may rest on another mediating priest, Jesus, who, like Samuel, prays on your behalf. Friends, sometimes we have to rely on the prayers of another, someone whose prayers are always effective. And I want you to hear me now. In Jesus, we have the Samuel of 1 Samuel 7. You hear that? Think about this, friends. Romans 8 says that Jesus right now is interceding on behalf of the saints. Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, Jesus is praying for you. And it's the kind of prayers that are effective They actually make it up to God and it makes sense to him and God answers those prayers. And so in all of our battles and pain points and areas of weakness and need, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for me. What comfort this brings me to know that he's praying, even if I don't know specifically what he's praying for. And so we can experience the warrior king. We can experience his salvation when we cry out and return to the Lord and repent and depend upon him. So we're talking about preparing for this warrior king. We've talked about experiencing this warrior king. Now let's turn to the final episode in our chapter. Let's talk about remembering the warrior king. Let's read verses 12 through the end of the chapter uh, together. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. 
The cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and would judge Israel at all these locations. Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there and he built an altar to the Lord there. What a crazy turn of events, right? I mean, think back to chapter 4, the battle of Aphek, everything that's happened since then. Things have been totally turned upside down for Israel, for the better, right? But to really kind of take in this moment, we actually have to kind of zoom out and take in the entire story so far. Because this entire story, from, from Aphek to Ebenezer, and all of the crazy stuff that happens in the middle, it's all Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2 coming to fruition. It's really cool. I want you to see this. Flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Do you remember God provides Hannah with a baby? And we talked about how God's work in her womb to bring her life was a picture of how God was going to work in the nation of Israel, right? So that's what we see in this song. Now look at verse 4 with me. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Now down to verse 7. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. Now watch this. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Isn't this what we have seen for four chapters now? This is exactly what God has been doing, right? In chapter four, the corrupt house of Eli is torn down at the battle and the, 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 the crushing of, of the Philistine god Dagon. The Philistines destroyed. And now the poor and the weak, the Israelites, are raised up from the dust. And he sets them in the honored Seats of the noblemen, right? What God prophesied in Hannah's song, he is now fulfilling for Israel. What God did in that womb, in Hannah's womb, bringing her life, he's now doing in Israel, bringing them spiritual life. Chapter four, Israel's leadership is killed. The sanctuary is torn down. Israel's completely defeated, at least for a season. But now look what is happening. A resurrection work is taking place because God is acting so now you've got the good guy, Samuel, who's leading the way, and the right sacrifices are being made, and Israel's restored to God. And as you look at the end of the chapter, they get their land back too. What is the lesson for us, friends? It's really simple, isn't it? Our warrior king God is faithful to fight for us. And if he says something, he's going to do it. Think about one more time the narrative arc and how, how it moves from chapter 4 to chapter 7. It moves from tyranny that we see in chapter 4 to peace that we see in chapter 7. And so what happened in between was what? It was God, right? Israel didn't clean up their act, which then kind of led God to, hey, I guess I'll you know, take care of them. That's not what happened at all. God began fighting well before they repented. He takes the initiative with his sinful people because he is faithful to his promises, right? And, and then as you examine both ends of this narrative arc, 
we see two names. The end of chapter 4, the end of chapter 7. Chapter 4, we see the name Ichabod. Chapter 7, we see the name Ebenezer. And both ends of this ark are memorialized in this name. The exile of God was memorialized in the name Ichabod. The glory has departed. Now the victory of God is memorialized by this other name, Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us up to this point. And that little phrase, up to this point, is so telling. There's kind of a whole chain of mercies that I think Samuel is, is remembering. In this statement, in this little statement, he's probably going way back in the past and gathering up a bunch of gratitude. So Abraham and the rescue from Egypt and their preservation in the wilderness and their promised land conquest and all the ways God has been faithful to this nation. Even in the dark times, even in the times of spiritual barrenness, God was helping them, right? helping them to know themselves, helping them to know their sins, helping them to know his judgment, his disciplinary love. It's all mercy, isn't it? And so Samuel is looking far into the past and he's gathering up all these mercies and he's kind of marshalling it through this, this monument, through this Ebenezer, to stoke up their faith and hope up to this point. I think that phrase implies what God has been for his people. This warrior king, he will continue to be for his people. And so Samuel sets up this monument to rivet their gratitude. Because I think he knows, and we know this too, gratitude keeps our faith fresh and stimulated, doesn't it? Listen to the words of Dale Ralph Davis. We stand in the present, but dwell on the past, in order that we may be steadfast for the future. We stand in the present, but we dwell on the past in order that we can be steadfast for the future. Uh, Ebenezer is much like a scrapbook. Some of you make scrapbooks. My daughter just bought a scrapbook, and she's like putting pictures in there, and she's trying to you know, put it together. My wife's done scrapbooks in the past as well, kind of commemorating certain seasons of our life, right? And maybe it's an old photo album or your Facebook memories or something like that. There's, there's something about seeing those pictures which kind of stimulates our memories, and those memories stir up love and produce appreciation in us, right? You may have a scrapbook for your family or for your college years or for a season in your life. But friends, do you have a scrapbook for God? Have you built up these, these kind of mental monuments in your mind where as you look at that monument, there's no doubt in your mind that God has been faithful? Those times where we know God has come through. Maybe it was a season of pain or a trial. But, but in the midst of it all, you know that God was there, guiding you, helping you, comforting you, protecting you. And as you look back on those days, those months, those years, you kind of set up this Ebenezer, a mental monument that kind of marks out that time period as one of God's persistent faithfulness to you, persistent love and care for you. Can you think of Ebenezer's in your life? I can think of one particular Ebenezer that has been significant for me as I was thinking about uh, this passage and as I, I was thinking about the, the hymn that we sung earlier, Come Thou Fount, and that second, that second um, stanza, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, what's coming right from this particular passage. And, and I, I think of the story of when my dad died in 2009. Some of you know a little bit about this story. And when he died, there was some unresolved issues and unforgiveness on my part uh, between him and I. And there's a tension there 
that was not resolved. And so when he died, there was a finality to it that was overwhelming, if you can understand. And so I had to deal with that before the Lord. I had to understand how does the Lord forgive me in this particular situation. So I had a very kind pastor named Doug who came alongside me and just started to work through this with me. And I sat in his office one day. I'll never forget this moment. This is, this is my, one of my Ebenezer's. I'll never forget the moment where he sat there and he opened up the Gospel of Matthew and he pointed me to a story that depicts the extravagant grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And then he just asked me a question. He said, do you believe that God forgives you in Christ? And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders because I wasn't believing that in that moment. And so he kept asking me that question, and then he turned the question into a statement, and he said, God forgives you in Christ. God forgives you in Christ. He had to say that maybe six or seven times before I sensed that it was true. And I tell you what, um, this is one of those moments where I knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was present. And he ministered to me by his word, through his spirit, through a mere mortal sinful man named Doug. That's one of my Ebenezer's. What about you? What are your Ebenezer's? Right now, you may be living between the battles of Aphek and Ebenezer, right? You're tempted to despair. You're, you're pressed close to the limit. You're almost too tired to care. You're frustrated because you can't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He just seems so distant from you. My friends, what if you, what if you push the replay button? What if you examined your scrapbook for God, those mental Ebenezers in your life, where it was clear to you, man, God was in this. God was for me. God was my help. God showed up and dealt with it. Sometimes this is all that we need to sustain us in the present. This is what kind of fuels our faith and keeps us going, keeps us persevering, right? Do you have these mental monuments? You know, at another level for all Christians, our greatest Ebenezer is the cross, isn't it? For at the cross, what do we see? We see the seriousness of sin, the weight of God's glory. We see that God doesn't sweep sin under the rug, but is willing to judge sin fully. But we also see the generous, the extravagant, the lavish grace of God in Christ. Because this is where we see God coming to help sinners, right? And so we can raise up the cross together every single Sunday, every single moment of your life. You can raise the cross up as your Ebenezer and you can say, thus far has the Lord come to help me. If he's helped us thus far with the grace of the cross, will he not help us bring us safely home to glory? You know, he may not protect us from illness. He may not protect us from cancer or job loss or from loneliness. But he will protect us from ultimate destruction and eternal harm won't he? So brothers and sisters, when you feel overwhelmed with your problems, maybe you're feeling that way right now, when you feel like God has abandoned you or he's distant from you, when you feel threatened by the circumstances of life, maybe the circumstances of life right now are harsh, I want to encourage you to hold up the Ebenezer of the cross, to remember God's faithfulness to you at Golgotha. The cross is our Ebenezer, the great declaration of God's help, is it not? And recognize that if he could do that for you and for me, then will he not do whatever it takes? Will he not pursue you at all costs 
Will he not fight whatever battle that needs to be fought on your behalf so that you can get over the next hurdle, that next thing, that next sin in your life? Jesus is our warrior king, and he has come to fight for those who repent and worship him alone. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to reflect on the passage, prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.